On September the 26th, 1983, the world almost ended. But for the courageous action of Stanislav Yegraevich Petrov, uh, you and I would not be here today. You see, a week earlier, the Soviet Union had shot down a commercial airline near Korea. And during the Cold War, I don't know if you know, things were tense. Uh, <clears throat> nuclear weapons were involved, and things got a little bit more heated, so much so that a week later, uh, Petrov began to get a variety of urgent messages and communiques and alerts, saying that the United States had fired one ICBM and that five more were on the way. Missiles with a nuclear payload. And he was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet air defense. He was in charge of essentially unleashing all of the Soviet missiles on the United States of America. That was his job. And even though it was against orders, he stopped for a moment and thought, I just don't think they're that crazy. And even if they are, I'm not that crazy. And so he decided unilaterally not to retaliate, not to pull the trigger, even though it was endangering the lives of everyone he knew and his own life, he chose peace. And as a result, nobody remembers his name because he didn't start World War III, because he didn't blanket the earth in nuclear fallout. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, the story of scripture we're going to read today is about a peacemaker, a strong biblical woman. And we don't remember her name. Not because it's not in the Bible. We don't remember her name because in the story of David, we remember other women who made bad choices. We don't remember the women who made the good choices. So this is 1 Samuel chapter 25, if you want to follow along with me. We're continuing in a series called Strong Biblical Women. 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to start at verse 2. And if you're following along today, um, I'm going to move kind of fast because it's a long story. It's a good story, but there's some repetition. So you might see me skip some things. It might be tough to follow. 1 Samuel chapter 25. There was a man in Maon whose property was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was clever and beautiful, but the man was surly and mean. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name. Thus you shall salute him. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. Peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your sight, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants, to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and the meat that I have butchered from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. Verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to salute our master. He shouted insults at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We never missed anything while we were with them in the fields, as long as we were with them. They were a wall to us both day and night. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. 
Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for evil has been decided against our master and against all of his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves and a long shopping list. And now David had said, Surely it was in vain that I protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, but he has returned me evil for good. God do so to David and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and alighted from the donkey and fell before David on her face, bowing to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Upon me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Let your servant speak in your ears. Hear the words of your servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, as you yourself live, since the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, from taking vengeance with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be like Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If anyone shall rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, under the care of the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. When the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that is spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or having saved himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. Blessed be your good sense, and blessed be you who have kept me today from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. And David received from her hand what she had brought him. He said to her, Get up, go to your house in peace. See, I have heeded your voice and have granted your petition. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Jesus, the ultimate child of God, says this to us in his Sermon on the Mount. You will never look more like me, never look more like the Father, never look more like the Spirit, than when you choose to make peace. The family resemblance is strong in that moment in particular. We are at our most Christ-like when we choose to let go of an offense. When we try to bring people back together who are very angry. We are at our least Christ-like when we cling to our sense of injustice. When we demand that somebody be punished. We're at our least Christ-like when we insist on retribution, revenge, getting even, being right. We're at our most Christ-like when we choose redemption, restoration, reconciliation, grace, and forgiveness. And that is not an easy thing in the world that we live in. The world that does not care so much for peace and that prefers war. A world that says that people should be punished forever. One mistake on Twitter, that's all it takes. One mistake in politics, that's it. One mistake that's public and significant and it's over for you. We want to see people pay for what they've done. We have a strong tendency in our culture in particular to encourage people to say, well, 
you've been hurt, you should cling to that forever. You should let that become your identity. That should, that should wrap itself around you, and you should never let go of that, because as a victim, it's the only power you have left. You're right, and they're wrong. Hang on to it, and make sure that they suffer by seeing you suffer. Make sure that in bitterness, you live the rest of your life. This hopefully sounds really stupid to you, really foolish. Unfortunately, there are many people who choose to live their lives in this way. And the word fool is the most contemptuous, the most insulting term that the Bible has. And it fits Nabal like a glove there's a lot of first grader humor in the passage of scripture I just read, and you would have to know Hebrew to really pick up on it. But if Abigail spoke English in verse 25 and 26, she'd say something like, his name is Anus, even though his name is Amos. Right? Nabal in Hebrew sounds an awful lot like the word for fool. We call him stew, which is short, not for steward, but for stupid. Um, this, I parked behind a guy this week, uh, that felt like the providence of God. I don't know who chose this license plate for the guy, but... It, it seems like a poor life choice to let police officers know that this is who you are, because those are the people who really care about license plate. There's, there's something about fools, right? We, we know that we're going to encounter them, but we don't like it. There's a book called Proverbs. It spends a lot of time talking about fools. It warns you, do not become one. And it will also warn you that foolishness is contagious. People become fools just by being close to other fools. They, they don't think through the consequences of their actions. They cause trouble wherever they go. If you answer a fool according to their folly, then you sink to their level and you become a fool. Or you let the fool do his thing and you don't answer a fool according to the folly, and then you just get hurt. It's a no-win situation. The only way to deal with fools is not to deal with fools, to avoid them like the plague that they are in your life. And that is not possible, so you're bound to get pretty banged up. David, unfortunately, knows this very well. He's had more than his fair share of fools in life. There's a guy named Saul who doesn't appear in this story, but Saul is a fool. No matter how good David is to Saul, Saul thinks that David is a threat. No matter how loyal David is to Saul, Saul tries to punish him. So David is living in the desert, in the wilderness, doing everything he can to kind of make ends meet. He's got a bunch of other loyal soldiers that are with him. They are not overthrowing the government because that's not actually what they're doing. And so they don't have anything to do, and they form sort of an unofficial neighborhood watch. They're kind of a sheriff's posse. This is the first, like, eight, nine verses of our passage. And that means that they're heavily armed men just kind of hanging out in the Wild West. And so in this part of town, people don't get robbed as often. And wild animals don't manage to steal livestock as often, and bandits and cattle rustlers don't do as well. And people in the area are really thrilled, and they, they give gifts to David just as a thank you. And some of the people they've been watching out for, the guys say, hey, our, our boss, his name is Nabal, he's loaded. Thousands of sheep, thousands of goats. Like, if you, if you ask at the right time, you'll get what you're looking for, but fair warning his wife, beautiful inside and out, incredible person, remarkable strong woman. This guy, he's surly and mean and a terrible human being. So you're going to have to pick your moment. You're going to have to say it exactly right. And so he waits for harvest time. He waits for people to already be in a good mood. It's Thanksgiving. There's generosity kind of everywhere. There's a feast. He sends 10 men up to Nabal and he says, this is what you say. Exactly these words. Peace be to you. Peace to your house. Peace to everything you own. May God's blessing come on you. May God's shalom just surround you. And oh, by the way, we've heard about you from some friends of yours. We've been hanging out with them in the desert. They love us. We love them. And if you happen to have some leftovers lying around, whatever you've got, we'll take it. Sincerely yours, your servant David, your son. And they wait. And Nabal says, screw this guy. And screw his dad. 
And who is this guy that he thinks he can come ask me for some favor? Why would I give him my food, my bread, my wine that I've worked so hard for? From what I have heard of this guy, he's a traitor and a coward. Why? What? It's like walking up to the kid on the playground who's bigger than you and just throwing sand in his face. Like, nothing good will come from this. Why would you needlessly provoke armed soldiers? It's a terrible idea. This, the servant who shows up in verse 14 says, David sent men, and they were complimentary. And our master just started shouting insults at them. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And terrible things are coming. And oh, by the way, they've been really good to us. They, they're the reason the harvest is so good this year. He could have said no, politely. He could have said, 600 men is too many men for me to feed. I'm very sorry. He could have sent something very small and said, that's all I've got. He did not have to say, you're a traitor and a coward. That was not necessary. No one really ever, but that's the thing about fools. Right? This guy is a narcissist. Notice how many times he says the word I or my in his one or two sentences. All the time. He's blinded by greed. He's blinded by pride. And he loves himself more than anything else in the world. Now, we know people like that. And we know that there's no, really, there's no good way to deal with people like that. They're, they're going to be difficult people. Some of us have worked for people like this. Some of us work with people like this. Some of us are related to people like this. And you just, what can you really do? But, yeah, David's not going to make the right choice. That's just, that's what's going to happen in our story. And the servant knows this already, and he runs to Abigail and says, look, you better figure this out. Something's going to, verse 17, you better figure this out because evil is coming. No one can respond to this. What he said, no one is going to react to that well. And I just hope you come up with a plan because nobody can talk to our master. He's too ill-natured. There's no, there's no talking to him. And we know people like this, abrasive people, difficult people in our lives. But Abigail springs into action. At verse 18, she hurries. Four times in our passage, we'll get the word hurry. It always refers to Abigail. She is racing toward David. Racing toward someone who is angry and well-armed. I don't know about y'all. Um, when there is conflict like that in my life, right, someone that's that angry and has real power, my move is to avoid that kind of conflict. Uh, any other conflict avoiders in the room? Anybody with me? Yeah, there we go. All right, people. Um, does it ever work? No, never works. I'm going to leave this alone. It'll go away. No, that's not what happens. It's just that I don't understand Abigail. At the very least, I would be dragging my feet as I head toward this dangerous and scary man. Scary partly because he's angry. Scary because he's actually dangerous. In verse 34, he actually says, I'm glad that God held me back from hurting you. Like there's a real possibility, you, specifically Abigail, there's a real possibility he would have just murdered her in the road. He's that mad. Now, those of us in the room who are not conflict avoiders, uh, some of us love conflict. Uh, and that's probably the rest of you, I'm just guessing. People tend to fall into <laughs> one or two categories. Uh, you either run away from it or you're like, I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. I'm going to beat you at your own game. I'm going to tell you why this isn't my fault. It's that guy's fault. I'm really good at being defensive and arguing, and, and I'm, I'm ready with this. And so the idea that she would hurry toward David doesn't sound so bad to you. You're like, I'm not scared of that guy. I could totally convince him that I'm right and that he should, he's overreacting in this moment. But Abigail, when she hurries, she's hurrying to apologize. She's racing to him in order to humble herself, to bow down on the ground and say, I'm sorry. 
Now this, people who love conflict, that's, you don't run to apologize. That's not what we do. We avoid that moment as long as we possibly can. I certainly don't want to like, say I was wrong. Especially not when it's clearly someone else's fault. It is clearly the idiot in the story who is at fault. It's not Abigail's fault. She's taking responsibility for something that's not really hers. In fact, what she's going to do is find everything she can be responsible for. I wasn't there. I should have seen them. I wish I'd been the one who'd talked to your servants. I could have solved this problem. I'm really sorry. It's my fault. Blame me. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Abigail looks an awful lot like Jesus in this story, don't you think? Someone who's just willing to say, my fault. I'm sorry. I'm wrong. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. You'll regret it, and you're going to hurt a lot of people. I just want to see peace. It's a remarkable thing in this story. Abigail does not really submit to her husband. Now, I have friends who read certain parts of the Bible in particular ways, and they see some of the passages that talk about wives submitting to their husbands, and they go, see, women should submit to men no matter what. Even if they're wrong and stupid, they submit to men. And these folks, they tend to ignore other passages in the Bible that talk about men submitting to women or the mutuality of relationships. Now that's a better way for relationships to work. Uh, They also tend to ignore stories like this in the Old Testament, stories like Abigail, but also Esther, where if the wife submits to the husband, everybody dies, right? So what the God who wrote the Bible says, right, is that you should use your brain and read the whole thing. That's not to say that submission is a bad thing. Submission is a deeply biblical thing. It's just to say we don't read one part of the Bible and go, well, I just put this into practice in my life uncritically and without thinking through how it might work best in this way. She calls her husband a fool repeatedly in this story. He is. That's fair. But she does that in order to save his life. Right? She's both submitting and not submitting to her husband. She's saving his life. Of the two, would you rather she protected his pride or saved his life? She submits to David, right, bowing down on the ground and apologizing, but she also does not submit to David. Please don't do this. This is a bad plan. Do not do this. Submission is a deeply biblical thing. In fact, it's actually a great way to become a peacemaker for men and women to learn how to submit to folks in the right ways, at the right times, to be people who draw folks together. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. David, however, does not know that repentance has begun to happen, at least in certain people behind the scenes. David is ready to kill some fools. He is ready to beat some people up. And you and I, in our time, we look at these sorts of things, we're like, we're really civilized. I don't carry a sword. I have a cell phone, right? I go, I go to a restaurant and a waiter is rude to me. I just leave a one-star Yelp review. That's all I do. I don't go murdering. That's not, that's not how I treat the world. But deep down, what happens when most of us leave the one-star Yelp review is we're thinking, I hope that guy gets fired, though. Like, I'm really, that guy was really rude to me. Or when we get cut off in traffic and, like, deep, we're like, I really hope that guy gets into an accident. I don't want him to die. But, like, like if he broke his leg for a while, like, that would be, that would make me feel really good. The people on social media, right? The way that we talk to these people, the way that we think about these people, we we want harm to come to them. We just don't want to be responsible because we feel more civilized. Here's something that everybody knows. Wanting someone to die and not having the opportunity to kill them is not the same thing as not wanting to kill someone. There is a difference between being a peacemaker and being unable to start a war. A very real difference. There's a guy named James Acaster who tells a story at a time he was in a British uh, grocery store. And I'm going to tell it the way he would tell it. So I walked up to the counter, and the woman behind the counter, there, was, there were bananas near her, and I was like, I want a banana. I was like, I, uh, can I, I'll get a banana. 
She says, you're in luck. We're giving away free bananas today. All right. Thank you. Takes the banana, starts walking out the door. As he gets to the door, she says, ah! I didn't say which of the bananas were free. And he stops and thinks, how unnecessary. Like, why would you, how do you have too much power in a grocery store? And why would you be laying traps for customers? Like, why, what are you doing with your day? Okay, um, which of the bananas are free? As if to highlight how insane a response that would have been initially. We're giving away free bananas. Which specific ones? These bananas, she says, are free. Jet black bananas that are just molten on the inside. No solids left. Jiggly, these things. You know what? That's okay. I'll pay full price for my banana. I think I can swing it. He buys the banana and he's walking out the door. He hears her mutter behind him. He's too good for a free banana. He's like, for some reason, this just drove me crazy. And I went home and I started thinking about this lady. For weeks, I would lay at night imagining myself opening a banana store in her neck of the woods. All we sell is bananas. And she's going to come in because you're curious, right? They only sell bananas. And when she comes in, she has to buy a banana because it'd be crazy to go in and say, well, you don't have what I'm looking for. So she goes to the counter and she says, I'll have one of the bananas. And I'll say, we're giving away free bananas. And I'm wearing a disguise. And she says, which ones? Because I'm not going to get her there. Right? She invented this drink. And I'll say, all of the bananas are free. And as she reaches for a banana, I'll say, ah, I didn't say all the bananas were free to everyone. And she'll say, who are the bananas free to? And then I just eat all the bananas. Me. No bananas for, this, for the rest of her life. We, we go through these kinds of crazy revenge scenarios. They don't get quite that extreme, but we do imagine ourselves doing what David does in this story, David responds to this crazy report of this crazy insult. Lock and load, right? That's one word in Hebrew, like, everybody get ready. We're going to go smoke these guys. It is Bruce Banner turning into the Incredible Hulk. It is terrifying, and it is awesome. He, you don't want to be anywhere nearby. David is far too effective a soldier. You read the rest of the Bible. These people are good at killing people. And Nabal is not an army. They don't have swords. This is going to be a bloodbath. And at the end of verse, I think it's 22, David is talking and he he says something very impolite in Hebrew. We're going to kill all of these. Uh, There's no good way for me to do it in English. Uh, But the translation I read is worried uh, that people who read the Bible in English will be offended by the Bible itself. So I'll just give you the King James Version, uh, which literally says, I'm going to kill any man who pisseth against the wall. Angry soldier ready to murder some people. Not polite Hebrew. And Abigail is running to meet this guy. And she runs to meet this guy. And when she sees him, she bows down. Even though he's been, you know, well, his trigger finger is so itchy. That that word trigger has come to take on a meaning in our time and in our culture. I don't know if you've seen it on social media or in casual conversation. uh, But it has a technical meaning in the counseling world. So counselor friends of mine and I, we were chatting this week. uh, It tends to refer to people who've experienced serious trauma. So somebody who's got PTSD and goes to a fireworks show and feels actually attacked in that moment. So the trigger causes a state of hypervigilance. You suddenly hit fight or flight and you're living as though you're actually being shot at. And people have begun to use this in our culture um, to refer to people who just um, get angry quickly or people who get ashamed quickly or feel afraid quickly or lie quickly. People who just, you can trigger them and at a moment's notice they just sort of shut down or they blow up. And my counselor friends would say this isn't a bad way to use the word. It just, people tend to use it to excuse behavior. 
So it's, well, you know, we were talking and um, I was with near these people, but there were these guys and I just, I sort of, there's something about them and I just, I got triggered and for the rest of the night I just felt afraid. Uh, what are you going to do? Or, you know, we were in this argument and they said something really offensive and I told them that it was offensive and they laughed and I just triggered me. And they deserved everything they got from that point forward. Or my wife and I, when we talk, there's just, she's able to push all of the right buttons. She just gets me so much angrier than anybody else. Or these people, they say the sorts of things that my family used to say to me and it triggers me and I just, I don't know how to deal with them. The counseling world, when they talk about triggers, they'd say that you, you should be aware of your triggers in order to avoid the situation or be aware of your triggers in order to stop letting them have that kind of power over you. To go, well, why this person? Or why did they say that? Or what was going on in that situation? Or why did I suddenly feel afraid or ashamed or so angry? Why did I overreact like that? The idea isn't to excuse your behavior. It's to say, well, I don't want to become that kind of person anymore. I don't want to live my life like a bullet in a gun just waiting for somebody to set me off waiting to flip out on the next person who manages to push the buttons just right. Triggers. David is triggered, and Abigail is trying to defuse a bomb. And she's down on her knees saying, blame me. Down on her knees saying, the guy's an idiot. And actually, when you think about it, idiots are the best kind of enemies. I hope all your enemies are this stupid. Uh, you'll do really well. And remember, God's got a plan for you, and, and God loves you. And she reminds him of a story. Uh, where he encounters David, uh, well, David encounters Goliath. Uh, an, an old story that many of us know. Um, she says, you know, you'll, you'll be like rocks in God's pocket, and your enemies will be like the rocks that you fling away in a sling. Remember that God has dealt with other enemies in your life. Trust him. He's got a plan for you. He's, he's on your side. Believe me, this is not the situation you want to go overreacting to. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, Leap Over a Wall, talks about this story. He says, Abigail on her knees in the wilderness, on her knees before David. David is rampaging, murder in his eyes. And Abigail blocks his path, kneeling before him. David has been insulted and is out to avenge the insult with 400 men worked up into a frenzy. Abigail, solitary and beautiful, kneels in the path, stopping David in his tracks. At this moment, David is full of himself and empty of God. The emptiness is visible as ugliness. Abigail recovers God for David. David is earlier described as beautiful, though there's no sign of it here. But beautiful Abigail restores the beauty of God to David, his original identity. That's what Abigail does in this story, but that's what Jesus does in our story. In those moments where we find ourselves having so much trouble with the idea of peacemaking, people have genuinely wronged us, we're genuinely afraid, or we don't really know what to do in this particular moment. Jesus comes alongside us and says, blame me. Hold me responsible. So the beautiful thing is Jesus dies for my sins, but he also dies for your sins and for the sins of the world. And so when we see other people out there acting like jerks and being fools, and genuinely acting like trolls in our lives, trying to trigger us as much as they possibly can, we can react the way we would usually react, or we can see those people the way that Jesus sees them as people in desperate need of love and forgiveness. People in desperate need of someone to come alongside them and, and to bring peace and reconciliation and redemption into their life. See, Jesus comes alongside us and says, hey, in your life, I'm the person who takes all the blame and all the guilt in their life. I'm the person who wants to take all the blame and all of the guilt. Blame me. Hold me responsible. Jesus gets there first and says, it's my fault. Blame me. 
Jesus gets there first and comes to us and says, look, I, I know who you are and I know you're better than this. I, I've seen who I made you to be and I've seen you becoming that person and I want you to look more, more like me than you do at this moment. I want you to be more of a peacemaker than you are at this moment and I can help you in that way. Remember that God's got a plan for you and that people like this can't really affect that plan. Remember that you are bound in the bundle of the living God. That's what it says in verse 29. That you are held close to him all the time. And your enemies, it won't be long until they get flung away. Don't let this trigger you in this moment. Don't overreact to this at this moment. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Friends, you and I have a God who is alongside us all the time, who has wrapped us up tight, bound us in the bundle of the living God. Someone who comes alongside us and says, look, no matter what's going on in the world, hold me responsible for it. And trust me that I can bring good out of evil, that I can bring life out of madness and chaos. Trust me when I say this isn't what you want your life to look like. And come with me and be a peacemaker along the way. Become people who are like Jesus, who are like Abigail, this strong biblical woman, who knows when to submit, when to speak, when to fight, when not to fight. The best part of this story which we didn't read, sorry. David ends up marrying Abigail. Um, Nabal will die um, of natural causes or of maybe supernatural causes. Maybe God kills him. And when David hears about it, he's like, oh yeah, I want to marry that girl. She's amazing. I want her in my life. I want her to be as close to me as I can possibly get to any other person. And you and I, um, we have that opportunity with Jesus to be people who invite him as close to us as a person can ever be with anybody else. To invite that kind of peacemaking savior into our lives. Who pushes us to be people who don't take things as seriously as we want to take them. Who don't take ourselves as seriously as we'd like to take them. To give up some of the narcissistic vision of our life. To, to not let that foolishness be contagious in our life. See, foolishness is contagious, but so is peacemaking. By the end of the story, David looks a lot like the David from the beginning. He starts saying, blessed, blessed, blessed. Peace, peace, peace. Blessed are you, blessed are you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for reminding me who God has called me to be. Thank you so much for stopping me from being someone I don't want to be. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for an old story that we probably should know better. And we pray, God, that when we become people who start rampaging and raging at the folks around us, that you would show up in our lives and you would speak softly but sharply. Call us back to yourself. That you would remind us, God, that you love us, that you've got a plan for us, and that we are safe in your arms. We want to look like you, Jesus. We know that you've already called us to be children of God. We just we want that family resemblance to get stronger and stronger. So I pray for my friends and for myself today that we would hear your voice as you call us back to ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen.